Father, this is a great blessing to stand here or sit here together, Lord, in a building. We know the building is just uh, mortar and stick and stone and so forth, Lord. But what is within it is what you purchased, us. And so we do not take for granted the church. And though we try to take care of the, the structure that we meet in, our biggest goal is our own souls. One, that we would be full of gratitude to the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would die for us. Second, that we would care for one another. We are a family. We love each other, and, and we want to serve you together, Lord. So continue to meld our hearts together, keep us close to you, close to each other, and we may be a group of people called by your name to serve you till our time here on earth is done. Lord, give us strength. May we be encouraged now by your word, your faithfulness of you, Lord. And we always see that in the scriptures. Though man may fail, you do not. So remind us of that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've been trying to knock out a chapter a week. Um, that's difficult for me. <laughs> but we're working at it. And uh, I've been trying to do that. So we're going to look at chapter 28 uh, tonight. And I've entitled it, Following the Faithfulness of God. And over and over as I look, I find that man always fails. He always falls short. He, he, he just struggles, right? Is that not true of us as well? And, and yet, God's faithfulness is always there. And this is some dark times uh, for some of the patriarchs. Things are not going as maybe they intended them to go. And we will see the faithfulness. Now, in that, think about this with me for just a bit. God faithfully gives us attitude adjustments, doesn't he? Ever had an attitude adjustment by God? A little swift kick, a little swift spiritual kick. Uh, the Lord may give us. Well, he does that for our good. And we see him do that quite often. Today is a great text of that, where he awakens people to his will. Even though he had already told it to them, he awakens them to his will. Just before we get into our text, turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 5. This is a verse that I thought of as I was thinking about an attitude adjustment that the Lord does. There are many verses that maybe would qualify in that. But Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and forward um, were some verses that reminds us. I think they fit good into the context of Genesis 28, um, but they also are a great reminder for us here in the New Testament time. Verse 15, therefore be careful how you walk. Not a great statement. It is, a, it is not a, a question, it's, it's not a suggestion. Is written very directly, therefore be careful how you walk. Is that legalism? Well, some people say when you instruct on how to walk that you're teaching legalism. But the Bible gives very clear instructions of how to walk. And here Paul says to the church in Ephesus and to us today, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Well, where does our wisdom come from? Our wisdom comes from the word. Believing what God said. Believing what God has spoken to us through the word of God. That is how we become wise people. Verse 16, making the most of your time. Hmm. Some in this room may have a lot of time. Some in this room may not have so much time. The Lord could return today. But the, the, the Bible here is challenging us to look at time, understand that God has given us a limited time, do you realize from, you know, 
for a bazillion, gazillion, forever, eternal years, will still be alive with Christ and will look back at such a short drop of water in the ocean of life type of years here. And so Paul reminds the church, reminds us, make the most of your time. And, and there's a reason why, because the days are evil. They're not getting better. Sin continues to reign. Such division in the world. We watched that last night, didn't we? Two different views of what we would think would be pretty clear things. Life of a child? <laughs> think that would be pretty clear. No. Hatred towards that. We live in evil times. Evil times. And so we must take care of what we have. Life is a stewardship. Life is a stewardship. This whatever you have, how many ever years God grants you on this world, it is a stewardship. Verse 17, so then do not be foolish. Do not squander your years. And look at this phrase here. But understand what the will of the Lord is. In our text, we've been watching, particularly Isaac, in the last couple of chapters, know what God's will is, but choose and try to do something different. He knew that the younger would serve the older. He knew God had told them both, him and his wife, that Jacob would be the one with the birthright and the blessing. And yet he did everything in his power, trying to do just opposite of God's will. Don't act like a fool. God's will will be done. And so a fool is one who would go against a perfect, sovereign God who has laid down his plan from the beginnings of the foundation. A wise man or a wise woman or a wise person would say, I think I want to know what God's doing and ask him if I can go with him. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be wise? And yet we, like Isaac and Jacob, and some of the patriarchs and matriarchs, Choose to try to fight. <laughs> Choose to fight against the will of God. When, Paul, when God saved Saul, soon to be Paul, um, on the Damascus Road, he said, why do you kick against the goats? Why are you kicking against something that you have no control over? And so we're reminded over and over, and as we look at these great stories within the book of Genesis, I don't want you to get lost in the, the line, the storyline. They're wonderful as it is, but there's lessons. Do you need an attitude adjustment tonight? I pray the Lord will give it to us. Oh, look with me back now at Genesis 28. Genesis 28. The deception is done. The lack and trust of God has led them to pull a switcheroo. And because God is God, Jacob still was blessed and Esau was rejected, just as God had said in the beginning. And despite their efforts, God came through, but now it has caused problems. And there needs to be a change of heart. And so our first thought tonight is Isaac's change of heart, one through Five, look at these. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, you shall, t you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise and go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. 
May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojourners, sojournings which God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padanaram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Armenian, the Armen, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Well, it's difficult to try to understand the time frame here from chapter 27 to 28. We have this bedside blessing. And now, really, in this, this, text, this text, we have a new, another blessing that affirms that. But Isaac's heart was hardened in the last text. But from something happening here, his heart was resisting the will of God, but now seems to be softening, and he seems to be submitting to the will of God. I don't know why. The Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe Rebecca said, you know, we got out of line here, honey. <laughs> I'm trying to fix things over here, and you're trying to fight God's will. I don't know. It doesn't tell us exactly why, but there seems to be a real change in Isaac's heart here. Maybe Esau's sinfulness became apparent. Maybe they saw and finally got tired of the things he had brought into the camp, these women of different faith and so forth. Maybe it was just pure conviction of his own sinful heart. Maybe. Maybe he finally just realized and said, wow, I know what God said to do, but I did not do it. James says that's sin. But for whatever the reason, whatever happened here, Isaac seems to be back to understanding and obeying the will of God. Without confusion now, Isaac calls Jacob to himself, and here he reaffirms the blessing and charges to go find a wife and fulfill these family lines, keep those lines within the family. And he's endorsing this and he's sending him out. Verse 3, we see that Isaac calls on God, listen to this, God Almighty to bless Jacob. He's now speaking the language that, Jake, that his father Abraham spoke. And with all the components of the blessing of Abraham. We look back at chapter 27, um, verse 28 and 29. Remember, we looked at this last week. We see the blessing in verse 28. In the greater part of verse 29, we see the birthright. So the blessing has to do with his these heaven and earth and the abundance of grain and new wine. And then the birthright is that people will serve you, nations will bow down, you'll be the first among all. And so Isaac bestows the blessing and birthright to whom he, did, whom he thought was Esau at that time in chapter 27. Right? So the blessing of earth and heaven and nations and authority over the seed and a worldwide blessing and protection. But here now in verse 3 and 4, when we look at this text, really it's this um, affirming, um, some might call it his second blessing. He knows what he's doing this time. He's doing the will of God now. He, he gives God's promise of children in this one. You notice in verse 3. He gives the fulfillment of a large population of, for the nation. And he gives the completion of the land transfer and possession. And so Isaac now has come full circle. He's back in the submission of God's plan. Jacob is the right one. Now, I think this is important because up to now, um, it's been difficult to reconcile a New Testament text. If you just read chapter 27, you, you struggle with Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20. You should turn there with me. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 20. 
Because Jacob, like many of the patriarchs and matriarchs, are in the, what we call a hall of faith, right? They're listed here by the writer of Hebrews. And up to chapter 27, we see him fighting against God. He is trying to do just opposite of what God told him to do. And up to that point, and some, some wise seminary student after church last Wednesday came up and said, what do we do with this text? What do we do with this text? And, and I said, I think he's having a change of heart. Let's see what he does in 28. But notice this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Esau, uh, Jacob and Esau even regarding things to come. So here we have this verse, and, and as one of the seminary students said, well, what do we do with that? It doesn't look like he's on board. It doesn't look like he's exercising faith. And in chapter 27, if that's all we had, we would say, uh, yeah, I'm not sure how to reconcile that. <laughs> but chapter 28, as you turn back there, we begin to realize that there has been a change of heart in him. Isaac calls Jacob. He, he calls him by name now. There's, there's no deception left. He's calling Jacob and he blesses him and he charges him. Look, we're going to keep this family lying the way God said. Don't take daughters from Canaan. Go to your mother's house and you will find a wife there. And so here, this is where I would attach Hebrews chapter 11 verse 20 to this text here. And I think that's important to hold the integrity of the word of God that by faith Isaac blessed and uh, Jacob here. But as far as the biblical record stands, Isaac goes on from here because we don't see much more of him at all, uh, or the rest of the text. Isaac goes on to live uh, several more decades, as we realize. He, he lives in peace from what we can see from the biblical record. He dies and he's buried by Jacob and Esau on the same plot of land that Abraham and Sarah were in the end of Genesis 35. So we know he lived several decades longer after this. As we discovered last week, he was probably 130 years old. The boys were 77 years old. These are not young people. And yet God is patient through all of this. God knew what was going to go on. Uh, Psalms 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands. It stands. No matter what man does and what he tries to think he can somehow push by God and, and somehow manipulate God in some way to do what he wants him to do, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. And we can trust that. And as you watch, you know, speeches on TV last night, uh, this verse kept coming to my mind as I watched it. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The wisdom of man is foolish compared to it. Number two, Esau lacks a change of heart. This is discouraging a bit. Now Esau saw that Isaac, verse 6, was, had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take a wife to take himself a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he charged him, saying, this is after that purity of the line here, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father, these are very different words than what Esau had done, and his mother, and had gone to Padanaram. So Esau saw the daughters of Canaan, displeased his father Isaac. No mention of his mother here, because he's probably still mad at her. Verse 9, and Esau went to Ishmael, uh-oh, and married, besides the wives that he had from Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaoth. So 
now, it's almost, when I looked at this this week, I thought, it's almost like a little footprint or a footnote. The Spirit of God led Moses as he wrote the Genesis record here to remind us what's happening with Esau. Isaac's come around. He's got a change of heart. He's doing God's will. Jacob is trying to follow that. We'll get back to him in just a moment. And after this traumatic and emotional event that we saw Esau wailing. I mean, remember that in the text last week? He's wailing over that he lost his birthright and the blessing. After this traumatic event and missing that blessing, after marrying two pagan women from completely different faiths and bringing them into the family, after finally understanding that both Isaac and Rebekah don't like his wives, these Hittite women, Esau decides to marry a close relative in order to please them. Problem. Well, who does he choose? He chooses a daughter of Ishmael. And we know, you know what the Bible said about them. The one of the bondservant. <laughs> Not the free. He, he, he runs right back into the bondservant and marries the woman, marries from the woman who will always be known as the bondservant. So Ishmael was deliberately and specifically excluded from the family line. Remember that as we studied that? That's what Esau goes, and we clearly see this hard-heartedness to the will of God, and it once again eludes Esau. I was looking recently at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, because sometimes we come against people, and, and though it is not our job to try to see what's in the heart of man because we are limited to what we can see. There are verses that help us understand so we can rightly address people. But a verse like this, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. It's one of your, it's one of your clues that someone you're dealing with may not be a believer because they don't accept the things of God. They always fight against it. When two things are there, God's will and man's will, they always seem to go here. And then the verse goes on and says, for they are foolish to him. What, to go all the way, 500 miles over to Haran to go get a woman? We got Ishmael's, well, yeah, come on. They're foolish to him. And listen to this, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So the things of God, though they may know them, they rehearse them, they maybe even grew up with them, whatever may be the case, when it comes down to doing the will of God, it is always a struggle, and somewhere along the line, they just lean to the opposite direction. And, and we ought to know that. I mean, in some way, we have to help that person and keep teaching the gospel to that person. We don't give up on them or condemn them. It's not our job to do those things, but it helps us understand who we're dealing with. And just one more thought on this. If we... If we accept people at their word sometimes, right? Well, I walked the aisle, I said a prayer, here's my Bible when I was four. My mom signed it. You know, what we're afraid, listen, we're afraid that we pack people's bags for hell. What better job Satan wants to do than keep somebody thinking they're saved and they're not? So our job is not to try to determine whether they're saved or not. Our job is to give them the gospel. And if they love the things of the Lord, their, their life will make a different change, right? Repentance, opposite direction will begin to happen. But I think it's just glaring as we study Esau, and we'll see him again, but not for another 20 years after this passage. We're not going to see him for another 20 years. We see that he continues 
to go astray. The next time you see Esau in the text, 20 years will have passed, he will come out to Jacob with 400 warriors. And without a doubt, the prophecy that his father Isaac said that you will leave fertile ground and you will always have a sword in your hand will come true. And unfortunately, this is Esau. Look one more time at Hebrews chapter 12 with me because I, I know it's hard on us when we see people who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's in the Bible or a family member or a friend or someone. Um, but it is important to understand that God sees these things. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, is that reminder about Esau. Verse 15, he says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Well, how do you come short of the grace of God? It means you add something to it. <laughs> That's how you come short to the grace of God. Oh, I believe Jesus died for me, but he's going to really like me if I do this or that. Some kind of further development of justification beyond the sole work, finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you add to the grace of God. And when you add to it, you get nothing. Because you've contaminated it. And so here the writer of Hebrews says in verse 15, See that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble, and by it may be defiled. People are mad at God. Do you, you ever run into somebody who's mad at God? They're just mad. They shake their fist at God. Maybe that's you. Maybe you have been that person before you were saved and you remember being mad at God because he didn't do things the way you wanted him to do it. Verse 16. Let there be no immoral and godless person. Uh-oh. Esau made it in the New Testament, but not in a good way. Like Esau. Who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Verse 17 is really key. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. And we saw this last week. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Though he sought it with tears. Man, that seems so genuine when somebody cries. When somebody's so emotionally moved. And yet, no change of life. No change of direction. Don't ever stop preaching the gospel. Parents in here, never stop talking about the gospel. Talk about it when you rise up and when you lay down. Talk about it throughout the day. The Bible says the law was to put on the frontals, meaning it was always right there. The word of God, the gospel should never be more than a thought away from believers so that we're ready to react to those who may claim it but may not know it. So that's, Hebrews 12 is a, very important for us to understand because you'll run into people and go, I just don't think it was fair with Esau. I've had so many people say, I, I don't know why God kicked him out of the garden, you know, Adam and Eve. It's just unfair. <laughs> no, no conscience of sin. No conscience of understanding that sin killed Jesus. And, and so if you can't handle Esau or Adam and Eve, and they're, you'll never look at your own life. God is a God of justice and he always does what's right, and in the end, he exposes all men's hearts for who they are. But by grace, brothers and sisters, he plunges that truth into your and I's life. 
Listen, by his mercy, we cry out in repentance, Lord, I am a wretched sinner. We are like the man in Luke 16, who, who, or Luke 18, excuse me, who beats his chest in the back and won't raise his head because he is repentant of his sin. Oh, oh, a sinner like me, he calls himself. Such a difference between the Pharisee who was up front. So Esau is gone now from the text for a little while. We'll get back to him in time. Point three, God's protection of Jacob in the seed. Look with me at verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went towards Haran. He's not going to make it to Haran. He's going to stop. But he is on his way. And so God protects Jacob, and he's certainly protecting the seed here. And the Bible seems to imply that Jacob is moving on this journey alone, which is really interesting. Coming from who he was, you wouldn't think he was, but it seems as though he might be by himself. He, he's... He's the son of Isaac uh, and, and the grandson of Abraham. But it seems possible that he is traveling alone. And Jacob is traveling back to the land of his grandfather Abraham. It's a 500-mile journey. And he's following a trade route from Haran to, to Egypt. And this trade route would have been heavily used. This trade route would have been, um, uh, been near what historically is called the, the uh, the Fertile Crescent, right? It's a well-developed area. Lots of merchandise, lots of things being sold along here. Massive trade route moving through this thoroughfare. Abraham and Isaac doubtlessly sold on this tra- trade route. Doubtlessly, Jacob himself had been on this, moving goods back and forth of his father's stuff. But here on this trade route, we'll see, and when we get into the latter part of Genesis, this is the same trade route Joseph gets sold on. And get shipped to Egypt with a Midian group. But the Bible is centered on Jacob here. I want you to see this. Now the attention turns to Jacob here. And God's dealing with him. God's going to deal with him. God's going to help him understand his promises and protection of him. And particularly that seed that's going to come through him. And yet it seems that Jacob feels very alone. And we'll see that in the, in the narrative. It's a sense. It, I mean think about what he's going through. He he must feel alone. He's been really, in a way, kicked out of the family. Get out of here. Your brother's going to kill you. Go to this family. Find, go to our family and find a wife. So his brother's threatening him. Dad said go. Mama said go. And whatever plans he had seemed to be gone. You know, he's, he, he, he's given just uh, in the chapter before this, yeah, everything, you're going to have everything. And now he's alone on a highway. It may not be working out quite like Jacob thought. And so doubtlessly, he probably was confused, confused and filled abandoned by God. He's now in the middle of nowhere. All the promises given to him are back in Canaan. That's where everything was promised back there. But here he is running off to Haran. And questions must have flooded his mind. I've thought a few, what would might go through my mind? I go, uh, where, what's going to happen here? Will, will I ever get back to home? Will I ever see my mom and dad again? See, my dad's given his deathbed blessings, you know. Am I ever going to see dad again? How, how was he going to make a living? It, what's interesting is we don't see him carrying riches even on in the story. He has to go to work to gain his wife or wives. Would he be forced to marry a woman he didn't love? Is he forced to marry a woman he didn't love? Yes, he he's going to marry Leah, right? We're going to see that. And doubtlessly, he's asking, why me? Why is this happening? 
But God is in this. And there's such good lesson here, brothers and sisters. There are times you and I say, why me? Why, why is this happening? Well, hopefully we can look back and say, well, first of all, I need to look at my own life. What did I do? Did I disobey God? Have I been out of his will? Have I pursued things uh, that I thought were greater than his will? And then secondly, we have to come to the point where God still has control of us even when we're in difficult places. And I think that's what the Lord is going to show. And so look at point four, the comfort that comes from God dwelling with man. Look at verse 11 and 12. He came to a certain place and spent the night there, that he is Jacob, because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and laid down in that place. And he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set up on earth with its top reaching heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Well, all these questions and probably more were running through Jacob's mind. He falls asleep. We, we see this often in scriptures, right? Remember Joseph? He's going, uh, wow, the woman I love is pregnant, Joseph and Mary, right? She's pregnant. Um, man, I really thought she was the right woman. And remember, he's pondering all those things. He falls asleep in, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and following there. Uh, this often happens, and you can think of what's going on. He's going, man, I thought things were going pretty well. You know, we got the birthright. We got the blessing. Uh, I'm going to serve every, everybody's going to serve me. Everything looked pretty good. And now I'm out on the highway sleeping on a rock. <laughs> I, I mean, to me, there's a little bit of comedy in this, right? Have you ever been there? Like, man, Lord, that took a different turn. <laughs> I was thinking this is going to be pretty good. Now I'm sleeping on a rock. How many of you have a rock underneath your head today? God's not going to leave his children alone. That's what we love about this story. And there's been nothing so far um, in Jacob's life that is recorded that we can say, oh, he's such a good guy. <laughs> he really hasn't done anything outstanding that we go, wow, what a stand-up guy. But God loves him. And God loves his children. He doesn't leave them out there hanging for long. And Jacob's heart was probably open and longing for direction this time because he's hurting. When God often comes to us, we get in a place down on the bottom often, right? He's been there all along, right? But usually in the bottom of that progressive sanctification swell, we're down here wallowing around in some foolishness, is when we finally cry out to God, don't we? And I got a feeling Jacob's at that place. And here we begin to see God give Jacob a bigger picture. In verse 11, this is the place that Jacob later calls Bethel, the house of God. He's in the same place that Abraham lived in that area for a short time in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 13, Abraham comes back there and builds an altar to the Lord and worships him there. Since then, there was a small city built called Luz that had sprung up, but probably just a, a type of stopping time or a way station for caravans going back and forth to, to get out of the darkness and the cool, cold. But most likely, Jacob stays outside of town in order not to draw attention to himself. He's traveling, most likely, a very small group or even by himself. And after positioning his head on a rock, he falls to sleep, and God begins to reveal truth to him. And this is amazing. Verse 12, this dream happens. And behold, there's this ladder. 
And he has this vision. And remember, there are no scriptures written at all. So God is speaking all through the Old Testament in a portion of the New Testament um, through dreams and, and visions. Because this is how God communicated. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that. Until his son came and then the fulfillment of the scriptures. And so here this vision has, and, and think about this. If you, look, if you look at this, this is really a wild verse, isn't it? In, in some sense, God in this vision, pulls back the veil of the universe and reveals a ladder, pathway sort of thing that provides a mean of travel back and forth to the presence of God. It's almost kind of Marvel movie-like type thing, isn't it? <laughs> There's some portal, it seems, in this vision. And he sees these angel, these beings moving back and forth and God is at the head of this thing. And the words in the narrative are, are not common in Scripture. We don't we try to follow some of these words around. They're not used much. But whatever this thing is, right? And, and I don't think any of us can elaborate on this. I've, <laughs> I was reading guys that were going on to all kinds of things. I go, well, that's a long shot. I don't think we know. So I'm not going to try to tell you what it is. But doubtlessly, what God is doing here is he's showing Jacob that he was with him and he has a great plan for him and for mankind. And he's involved with earth. Because maybe in Jacob's mind, maybe in his mind he said, well, yeah, that's the God of Abraham. And he spoke and he's, you know, I heard the stories around the campfire. Oh, God spoke to Abraham and, and, and even dad Isaac and some things went on. But I've never heard. And I think what God is doing in this text is saying, I am here. This is my earth. I have a plan for it. And I got a plan for you. And I want to show you something supernatural. I'm moving back and forth. And I'm, and I'm a part of this. It's, it's a fascinating thing to study. We know that angels move back and forth on the earth. It's, they don't need a ladder. Um, Daniel chapter 9 shows them quickly moving to the earth, wrestling with Satan and all kinds of things back and forth. Job, we see the angels appearing before God and uh, his fallen angels and Satan himself and, and then back to earth they go. And so I, I don't think we're trying to make anything out of this type of ladder. What I think it's telling Jacob is I am aware what you're going through. I am here. And there's a day coming where I'll have my feet on the earth. That's an amazing thought. I think if anything, as we'll see in his next dream and some further passages, that it's speaking of Christ coming and putting his feet on the earth. And so God has not left Jacob. Five, God's personal blessing to Jacob, verses 13 through 15. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, and this is so key here, and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. Remember, this is all in that vision. I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. What an amazing statement. And here, God's personal blessing is given to Jacob. 
Jacob had heard the Lord's blessing of his grandfather and his father. Surely he knew that dad said, oh, you're going to be the birthright and you're, you're going to be blessed and all those things, but he had not heard it from God. I'm, sad, I, I'm just, I, I can imagine around the campfire the stories that were told of the personal appearances that Abraham had, the remembrances of Abraham being called out of a pagan world. I'm sure that story was told. Joshua records it, that Abraham's father was from the other side of the river and lived among the pagans and was pagan himself. I'm sure he'd heard the accounts of the creation week and extraordinary powers of God to speak what, we, what he saw in front of him into existence. He certainly had heard of the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the accounts of a horrible flood and many other biblical accounts. These things had been talked about. They knew the Almighty God. They, they spoke of him. But up to now, Yahweh had never personally appeared to Jacob. And perhaps Jacob was aware of the place he had stopped for the night. Maybe he knew this was where Grandpa Abraham made this altar. And maybe, maybe Grandpa um, Abraham, this stone that I'm putting my head on, maybe was part of an altar that he did. Maybe he stopped in that place because they had spotted that time and time again moving up and down this highway with trades. Maybe. But whatever the case is, God surely led Jacob to that spot. And God now was granting a vision to Jacob that the likes of which had never been seen nor were seen since. It's, uh, there's, there's so much you could spend time on this. This amazing vision that God gave him. But Jacob needed this, right? He, he needed encouragement. He needed to hear these promises and God desired to give them and he gives them in a spectacular way and this encouragement would propel Jacob for the next 20 years and we'll see him and one of the things we see about Jacob is he he has a new drive to him now um, he, he maybe doesn't as finish as well as we'd like him but this part of his life he has a new drive and and, and you think about where he's going to go he gets the old switcheroo on honeymoon night with a woman and he stays in the game and goes after the next one. And then he spends another six years gaining his flocks. He is driven. God doubtlessly sent this to encourage him. Time and, and again we have heard these promises. And now God is giving them to him. And there are several things that happen in these verses. Verse 13, God identifies himself as the same Lord who appeared to Abraham and Isaac. Verse Further on in 13, he says, the land, this land right here that you're sleeping on, be, it'll be yours, it'll be past your descendants. He's very similar, right down the line with his father and his grandfather. These were given by God. God restates that Jacob's descendants will be like the dust of the earth. It's very exact language that he used, verse 14, first part of there. And that they will cover vast territory in every direction. He also told them that that. The center of his plan was that all the nations would be blessed from that sea. That's the center of the plan. That's the Christ. That's his son coming. And so in all reality, no matter what Jacob thought could happen to him, the fear of his brother, the fear that he's going to go through with Laban, the, the fear of battles and wars or getting hijacked on this highway, those could never happen because of that promise right there. Christ is coming through him. He's coming through his seed. And finally, verse 15, God gives a personal promise that Jacob would be protected and would return back to that land of promise. So God is watching over even during faithless times. And lastly, well, quickly, we're about done here. Jacob's personal response to God, and I think this is worth just looking at briefly. 
he responds in a, to this marvelous vision that we see in these last verses. And, and Jacob can't hold his tongue. Um, what he saw, he breaks out here. His fears seem to be kind of washed away. His confidence seems to be renewed. It's not the Jacob who's holding on to the skirt of his mom, in a sense, and letting everybody tell him what to do. He now seems reinvigorated by this. And it seems Jacob's heart is now set for whatever may lay ahead of him. Look at verse 16 through 19 with me. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. Right? You ever feel that way? God strengthens you and you thought he wasn't there and, and he, he brings a passage of scripture or a friend who shares Christ with you, a truth with you, and you realize, surely God is with me. Lord, th- forgive me for thinking you, I was alone in this. This is what's happening to him. He's, he's not only woken from his sleep, he's waking up spiritually here, isn't he? Verse 17, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. Yeah, there's a fear when you understand this could be the portal of God coming back and forth. For all the reality that he knows, this is it. I'm sta- it's right here. This is how God goes back and forth to the earth. And he's shaken by this and calls it an awesome place. And this is, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. The Marvel people aren't coming up with their own stuff. They're stealing this. You Marvel fans out there. Verse 18, so Jacob arose in the morning. He took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel. However, previously, the, city, the name of the city was Luz. So most likely, this trembling, he's trembling with excitement and awe of the vision. Jacob dedicates the very rock that he put his, underneath his head and, and commemorates this. Jacob gives the name Bethel to this place, the house of God. This is all happening. And after seeing God's connection between heaven and earth, he now believes that he's with them. He renames the city and it's stuck. It's stuck. From here on out in the Bible, Luz is gone. It's called Bethel. Verse 20 to 22, then Jacob made a vow saying, if, or very possibly translated this way, since God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, I will give, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety. He, re- he repeats all three of those things God said. He's going to protect me, give me what I need, and bring me back here, Right? Then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. I, I don't think this is probably a bargaining chip that he's doing. I, I think you probably could exchange the Hebrew word for if to since. But in a way, you could use either. And it doesn't mean that Jacob does not believe that God is going to do these things. And it's probably more, I would think, of a vow than a conditional deal. And it seems to be an expression of confidence and thanksgiving in God. And and this is what we rally and encourages us that though you may walk through times of faithlessness, right? There are times we have faithlessness in our life, right? God meets us often at those times and strengthens us. I think we see that in Jacob's life here. This is exactly what I believe God wants to do in our lives. He gives a tenth of all that he has, which is nothing right now. Did you realize he did not take all of the stuff that was promised to him? 
That's still back with Isaac. Isaac's still alive. He doesn't seem to have anything with him. So he says, look, what all of you do for me, God, I'll covenant back to you a tenth. He's following Grandpa Abraham, isn't he? Chapter 14, Melchizedek, a tenth Abraham offered back. Remember, all of this is based on a promise. And he's still exiled. He still has nothing. This will take faith by, by Jacob's part. But clearly, Jacob knew the promises that his grandfather received, his father received, and now he has received. And though it's going to have 20 more difficult years in Jacob's life, these promises he will cling to. He's got 500 miles ahead of him. He's somewhere on that stretch. And Jacob's going to go through that. But nothing, and just close with this, that seed of Christ is in him. And nothing's going to stop that. Nothing. And, and, and our hope is on that highway in verse 28. Isn't that amazing? Our hope, the one who saved us, who, who here tonight make up the church that meets at Riverbend Community Church, is in, the, is in that line of Jacob. And it's going to get passed on to his sons and down from there. And God's going to use an array of characters, prostitutes and, and sheep herders and all kinds of people to bring that line through, protect each and every one of them to that son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is supernaturally placed in the womb of Mary, birthed, lived a sinless life, and died a perfect death and beat sin, Satan, and death in a resurrection and now sits on high the right hand. All on the highway to Haran right now. And God's got full control. Got some problems going on in your life? Got some struggles? Cry out to him. Maybe you need to lay your head on a rock for a little while. Remember how good God is. That he loves you. And listen, Jacob has nothing compared to what we have. He got one vision. When you finish this and you understand everything of that, maybe we can talk about some visions. So you get this down pat, it's all we need. It's all we need. So praise the Lord. He promised, he's a promise keeper. We're following his faithfulness, right? Not Jacob's faithfulness. We're following the faithfulness of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just a wonderful passage to, to encourage us, Lord. These are not perfect men and women we're studying. Their, their sins are recorded for us to see. And yet here you are being faithful, showing Jacob you have control. You have a portal to earth. You have your feet here. You will establish your rule and reign over your creation. And Lord, we pray that as we go through some deep waters at times, some faithless periods, that we would cry out to you and confess your promises to you. Maybe there's some in here tonight, Lord, that need to just cry out and beg you for forgiveness, repentance of sin. Maybe just the repentance of a lack of trust in you and trying to lead a life by yourself. Maybe trying to manipulate your will in some way. God, help us to trust you. Every one of us are struggling with something, Lord. The question is how long before we'll run to you? I pray that we do that soon, Lord. Thank you for letting us talk about you tonight, God. If you would not have opened our heart, we would not be interested in these things. We would still be very mad or happy or whatever from the speech last night. Our life would be all tied up in that. 
But it's not because we know the real God. And he will have his way. And kingdoms and kings will bow before him and you will turn their lives like the rivers because you're in control. So we trust you, Lord. May we live for you in Jesus' name. Amen.